Onassis Foundation presents Apply Dagger, Heidegger's Thinking in Being and Time Explained, a podcast series with professor and philosopher Simon Creechley. Hello and welcome to episode 15 of Apply Dagger, the chapter that's under our eyes for this episode is Temporality and Everydayness. That's Division 2, Chapter 4. What's going on in this chapter? Well, to go back to the mighty Marquis Smith of the, the full, the three R's, the three R's, the three R's, repetition, repetition, repetition. What we get in this chapter is the repetition of the analytic of everydayness from the perspective of temporality. That is to say, what's going to happen in this chapter is we're going to take the analyses that we've already seen in Division 1, the analyses of understanding, state of mind, falling, discourse, spatiality, and the rest, and we're going to repeat them from the standpoint of temporality. And the framing question here is... Now that we've got to the level of authentic existence with the discussion of ecstatic temporality, how does average everydayness look from the vantage point of authentic existence? Now, this chapter is a long chapter, kind of a messy chapter, a hodgepodge of different things. It lacks the condensed drama of the chapters that precede it, and it covers a huge range of topics, but it's full of interesting things. But we'll have to focus on some of those interesting things and reluctantly skip some. The chapter begins with the problem, the following problem. Given that ecstatic temporality has been described as the meaning of authentic care, What remains outstanding is an analysis of the various elements of care, right? Care consists primarily of these three elements, state of mind, understanding, discourse, and falling, right? So the care is the ahead of itself being already in alongside a world, existentiality, facticity, and falling. We've now seen that authentically analyzed or analyzed in the mode of authenticity, how do those things look in their inauthentic, everyday modes? Let's dig in on 68A, the temporality of understanding. Very interesting paragraph. Having given the structure of ecstatic temporality as authentic care, in paragraph 65, here we get the ecstatic temporality of inauthenticity, right? We had an account of ecstatic temporality as that of authentic existence. What about the three ecstasies of time in their inauthentic modes? First thing to note is that inauthentic Dasein is still ecstatic. It's always already outside, alongside things. It's always already outside, alongside things. Therefore, ecstatic, it's just differently ecstatic. Inauthentic life has chosen the they as its hero and not itself. The problem here is that given that 
approximately and for the most part. And those words that we've repeated many, many times in these uh, episodes are going to be explained at the end of this chapter. Proximity and for the most part, Dasein is irresolute and inconstant. How do we characterize this inauthentic temporality? So what does inauthentic temporality look like? And he, he analyzes it, Heidegger analyzes it in terms of the threefold structure of future, past, and present. And as so often in Heidegger, as we've seen in this book, Heidegger is often very obliquely illuminating. He often illuminates the thing that he's discussed previously by discussing a new thing. So the discussion of the world becomes clearer in obliquely comparing it with Descartes' conception of the world. Here, we're discussing inauthentic temporality, and it sheds a lot of light on what Heidegger means by authentic time. So let's go through the three inauthentic ecstasies of time. The firstly, the future. Now, if the authentic future is anticipation and Dasein's constantly being ahead of itself, right, um, which is the consummation of our being towards death, then how do we characterize the inauthentic future? It's characterized in terms of awaiting. Awaiting is the term that Heidegger introduces. Here's a first quote. This is on 386. He says, Dasein does not come towards itself primarily. I'm here at the bottom of the page on 386, about five lines up. Dasein does not come towards itself primarily in its almost non-relational potentiality of a being, namely ecstatically, but it awaits this concernfully in terms of that which yields or denies the object of its concern. Dasein comes towards itself from that with which it concerns itself. The inauthentic future has the character of awaiting. So there is an idea here of the inauthentic future as awaiting, not anticipating, but awaiting. That's the first concept. In German, that's um, gewärtigen, gewärtigen, which is uh, Heidegger's linking here to the idea of expectation and waiting. Erwarten and warten. Anyway, that's by the by. That's the future. The inauthentic future is awaiting. The inauthentic present, secondly, is explained in a contrast with the idea of being carried away in the rapture of ecstatic temporality. So let's look at a quotation on 387. He says, this is about halfway down the page on 387, corresponding to the inauthentic future, awaiting, there is a special way of being alongside the things with which one concerns oneself. This way of being alongside is the present or waiting towards. Heidegger's deliberately playing with the German here. Waiting towards is gegen wart. He's breaking up the term present in everyday German into its two component parts. Waiting towards. This way of being alongside is the present, the waiting towards. This ecstatical mode reveals itself if we adduce for comparison 
this very same ecstasis, but in the mode of authentic temporality. To the anticipation, which goes with resoluteness, there belongs a present in accordance with which a resoluteness discloses a situation. Sorry, discloses the situation. In resoluteness, the present is not only brought back from distraction with the objects of one's closest concern, but it gets held in the future and in having been. That present, which is held in authentic temporality, and which thus is authentic itself, we call the moments of vision. This term must be understood in the active sense as an ecstasis. It means the resolute rapture in which Darzan is carried away with whatever possibilities and circumstances are encountered in the situation as possible objects of concern, but a rapture which is held in resoluteness. The moment of vision is a phenomenon which in principle cannot be clarified in terms of the now. And the quote goes on. The now is a temporal phenomenon which belongs to time as within timeness, the now in which something arises, passes away, or is present at hand. In the moment of vision, nothing can occur. But as an authentic present or waiting towards, the moment of vision permits us to encounter for the first time what can be in a time as present at hand or ready to hand. And then Heidegger opens a footnote on Kierkegaard that we'll come back to. In contradistinction to the moment of vision as the authentic present, we call the inauthentic present making present. Formally understood, every present is one which makes present, but not every present has the character of a moment of vision. It's a long quote, forgive me. The inauthentic future is described as waiting towards the dispersed being alongside things in the mode of concern. And to this, Heidegger contrasts the authentic present of the moment of vision, or again, and the phrase he uses here, in, it's in a very compressed German, the moment of vision, or what he calls the in-resoluteness held rapture. The in-resoluteness held rapture. What a phrase. In der Entschlossenheit gehaltener Entrückung. We then get a fascinating little adumbration of this moment of vision as a present that is distinct from the vulgar now, as distinct from the vulgar future and the vulgar past. And then we get this little footnote reference on Kierkegaard. Uh, and we've seen this logic before in the footnote references to Kierkegaard, which are grotesquely unfair. Um, Kierkegaard sees the moment of vision, the Augenblick, but Heidegger insists Kierkegaard clings to the vulgar concept of time and therefore never knows the moment of vision properly. And that footnote is on page 497, footnote 3, bottom of the page there. I won't read that, but you can look at it for yourself. You can see that Heidegger again acknowledges that he borrows something from Kierkegaard and then disavows it because Kierkegaard is allegedly still trapped within the traditional way of looking at things. I think that's uh, unfair to Kierkegaard. So in contrast to the moment of vision as the authentic present, 
the inauthentic presence is called making presence. Making presence, or that which makes things present in an everyday way, right? Heidegger again is playing mercilessly with the German here. So what you have to think of is that we have the authentic present, which is the uh, moment of vision, and then the uh, inauthentic present, which is just called making present, the way things, if you like, show up in average everyday life. So that's the uh, future and the present, which leaves the past. If the authentic past is having been, having been-ness, as Heidegger says, whereby I come back to my almost self in the act of repetition, the inauthentic past, Heidegger says, is Dasein's forgetting of itself. Forgetting of itself. And this comes up on page 388. Do I need to quote that? Well, just, you can just look at it for yourself. In the middle of the page there on 388. Inauthentic understanding temporalizes itself as an awaiting which makes present. Right? Awaiting, future, makes present, the inauthentic present. An awaiting to whose ecstatical unity there must belong a corresponding having been. And then he contrasts that running down that page, that quotation on 388. In anticipating, Dasein brings itself again forth in its almost potentiality for being. If being as having been is authentic, we call it repetition. But when one projects oneself inauthentically towards those possibilities which have been drawn from the object of concern in making it present, this is possible only because Dasein has forgotten itself in its almost thrown potentiality for being. So we here get an idea of uh, forgetting. Forgetting as a backing away from one's almost potentiality for being that Dasein closes off from itself. So when I do not repeat who I am in the certainty of self-constancy, when I'm not repeating myself ensuring the constancy of the self in the unity of the three ecstasies of time, when I'm not doing that, I forget myself and I slip into self-oblivion. The self is constant only for as long as it repeats itself. When it doesn't, it forgets and becomes inconstant. We might notice here that this idea of Repetition that we saw in the last episode is a little bit like memory. Heidegger doesn't use the term memory, but by contrasting it with forgetting, if forgetting is the way in which I close myself off from myself, then my having been, being myself authentically, is an act of memory. So repetition is like memory. So, Future, present, past, inauthentically conceived. So what is the structure of inauthentic, ecstatic temporality? Heidegger gives us, gives us the answer to that question on page 389. It's the last lines of the paragraph. The awaiting 
which forgets and makes present, right? The awaiting that forgets and makes present. Those are the three inauthentic ecstasies of time. The awaiting future, which forgets uh, past and makes present, is, Heidegger says, an ecstatical unity in its own right in accordance with which the in accordance with which inauthentic understanding temporalizes itself with regard to its temporality. The unity of these ecstasies closes off one's authentic potentiality for being and is thus the existential condition for the possibility of irresoluteness. So, inauthentic ecstatic temporality is an awaiting that forgets and makes present. This is an extremely odd formulation, and it would be useful to work this through at greater length in a, in a discussion, in a paper, or whatever. And this is also linked to uh, a discussion of uh, fear, which appears in the, the next paragraph, where fear, Heidegger's discussion, the, discussing the temporality of fear, as a forgetting which awaits and makes present, what he calls a kind of bewildered making present on 392. Or he calls, uh, he uses an example, and thank God he does use some examples. He talks about the, um, the way in which fear can lead to a bewilderedness with regard to time and experience. He says, it is well known, for instance, this is the middle of page 392, it is well known, for instance, that the inhabitants of a burning house will often save the most indifferent things that are most closely ready to hand. So that when we're scared, we do strange things. We don't uh, operate resolutely. We forget stuff and we pick up the oddest things when our house is burning down. And we could... Um, Think about this further in relationship to, you know, what this inauthentic experience of time suggests. As you might know, I'm a, an enthusiastic reader of Beckett. I think about something like Waiting for Godot. Beckett's Waiting for Godot is an example of inauthentic temporality, where the constant awaiting, the Waiting for Godot, is an awaiting that continually forgets. People in Godot, Vladimir, Estragon are constantly forgetting things and which makes possible a present which is non-rapturous and where nothing really happens. The characters in Beckett do not rapturously anticipate their finitude. They await forgetfully. Think of someone like a crap in Crap's last tape by Beckett, who's trying to recover the elements of his memory which are recorded on tape and which he has forgotten. Now, continuing this into 68b, I'll skip most of this paragraph, and this paragraph deals with the temporality of state of mind and therefore with uh, mood. That's, what is the temporality of mood? And mood, of course, is the way in which state of mind is disclosed. It's fascinating, especially because of what it says about the time of fear. 
and the contrast between the time of fear and the time of anxiety um, and the way he contrasts those two times. But let me skip to the end of these pages, which will take us to page 394. He says, this is, a, I think, a suggestive remark where, again, we get an illumination of um, something which is not being directly discussed here. I think we illuminate the nature of anxiety through a discussion of fear. So, at the end of this paragraph, 394, about two-thirds of the way down the page on 394, Heidegger writes, but even though the presence of anxiety is held onto, it does not as yet have the character of the moment of vision, which temporalizes itself in a resolution. Anxiety merely brings one into the mood for a possible revolution. Resolution, sorry. Not revolution, resolution. The presence of anxiety holds the moment of vision at the ready. Auf dem Sprung. As such a moment, it itself and only itself is possible. So, I think this is illuminating because of its discussion of anxiety. The anxiety is the condition of possibility for the moment of vision. It's what makes the moment of vision possible, but it is not yet the moment of vision. It is the mood for a possible resolution that holds it at the ready, auf den Sprung, at the, uh, on the spring, as it were, at the ready, but it is not yet resoluteness. So anxiety is the ready in the kind of ready, set, go, ready, set, go, whatever you say. Anxiety brings Dasein to the ready, but then it's got to get set and go. And when it goes, that is the moment of vision. And this also, I think, you know, illuminates the distinction between anxiety and fear, which we've gone over a number of times. And it's so interesting and important in this book. He says on 395, fear, three lines in on three and 395, fear is occasioned by entities with which we concern ourselves environmentally. Anxiety, however, springs from Dasein itself. When fear assails us, it does so from what is within the world. Anxiety arises out of being in the world as thrown being towards death. So fear is fear of things in the world. Fear of determinate, specific entities that threaten us. I like the example of the, the big bear, right? Anxiety, by contrast, is uh, something that springs from Dasein itself. Therefore, 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 resolute Dasein has no fear. Fear is transformed into anxiety. Anxiety is courage. It's bravery. On 395, a um, little bit further down the first, on the first paragraph of 395. But anxiety can mount authentically only in a Dasein which is resolute. He who is resolute knows no fear. 
but he understands the possibility of anxiety as the possibility of the very mood which neither inhibits nor bewilders him. Anxiety liberates him from possibilities which count for nothing and lets him become free for those which are authentic. So anxiety allows Dasein to become free for its possibilities. Not those which are nothing, right? And those which are nothing are those of the world. And those things of the world bewilder us, scare us, they inhibit us. That's not what we're concerned with. To become free is to become free from those things of the world. In relationship to that quotation I just gave, if you flip back onto 393, there's two telling remarks on 393, bang in the middle of the page on 393. Heidegger says, anxiety is anxious in the face of the nothing of the world. Again, that idea that the world, which in Division 1 had been this world of Uh, fullness, meaning, and significance is now revealed to be nothing. And then the beginning of the last paragraph on page 393, anxiety discloses an insignificance of the world. The world which is meaningful has become a world which is meaningless. This is one of the places where we can think about the what Hans Jonas called the nihilism of being in time. Uh, Whether we think of nihilism critically or not. Interesting stuff. We then get a taxonomy of moods. Um, Suggestive, more could be said, but it's good that Heidegger is saying this. If the moods of fear and anxiety are linked to our inauthentic and authentic existence, and which are both grounded in uh, having been, then what about other moods? What could we say of other moods? And what about hope in particular? Hope which does not relate to the past, but relates surely to the future, a future good bonum futurum. Now, look at this uh, quotation here. This is 395. Halfway down the page, tiny bit more than halfway. How is a temporal meaning to be found in the pallid lack of mood which dominates the grey every day through and through? You see how grey the every day has become? And how about the temporality of such moods and affects as hope, joy, enthusiasm, gaiety? Not only fear and anxiety, but other moods are founded existentially upon one's having been. This becomes plain if we merely mention such phenomena as satiety, sadness, melancholy, and desperation. Of course, these must be interpreted on the broader basis of an existential analytic that has been well worked out. But even a phenomenon like hope, which seems to be founded wholly upon the future, must be analyzed in much the same way as fear. So here we get a discussion of hope. Um, 
what could we say about this? Well, firstly, let's notice the, the moods that are being discussed here. We've had, you know, a few moods, but primarily anxiety and fear. Here we've got joy, enthusiasm, cheerfulness, um, satiety, sadness, melancholy, desperation, melancholy, the black bile. But the analysis of hope is peculiar here because it's entirely self-directed. Heidegger goes on to say, the top of page 396, but here its character as a mood, he's talking about hope, lies primarily in hoping as hoping for something for oneself. Hope is self-directed for Heidegger. Hope is not hope for a better future, but is hoping for something for myself. As such, even hope is related to um, our burdens, our thrown ground, our mindness. That raises the question, at least in my mind, about whether on a Heideggerian basis we can think about hope for something other than what I hope for myself. Can I hope for a future which is not my future, say? Can I hope for another's future? For Heidegger, that would still have to be uh, referred back to the idea of hoping for something for myself. And we could take this into a much longer discussion of hope, but that would be another discussion for a, a separate occasion. Uh, but let's just say that I have, um, I have doubts about the concept of hope. Um, I think about an extraordinary moment in Anne Carson's Antigonic, Antigonic, not the Antigone, the Antigonic, where Nick is this character who is silent, who just draws on the stage throughout the performance, doesn't say a word. And there's this line about hope. Uh, hope comes in to tickle your feet. Oh, look, here comes hope to tickle, to tickle your feet um, without realizing that the soles of those feet are on fire. We go from that discussion of hope to a discussion of indifference, which is inauthentic, um, distinguished from uh, equanimity. And Heidegger thinks that indifference is uh, a pallid lack of mood, whereas equanimity flows from resoluteness. Equanimity is a kind of... Um, equalness of courage, as it were, being equal to oneself in uh, one's mood, gleichmut. It's almost like the idea of ataraxia in Epicurus, a kind of equanimity or tranquility that for Epicurus flows from the pondering of the, uh, the pondering of the cosmos. And also note here, um, on 396, like I say, this, this whole chapter is like a, is a minestrone of different things going on. So these are kind of little kind of moments of teasing where we can um, find themes that we already know in the book, which are being elaborated in suggestive ways. Final remark on 396 about the, uh, the being of animals, the being of that which merely has life. 
which is also affected. And can that which merely has life, does that, what does that mean? Does that have any, have any sense here? It remains a problem. He says, last lines of page 396, the last lines of the paragraph, it remains a problem in itself to define ontologically the way in which the senses can be stimulated or touched in something that merely has life, the how and the where, the being of animals, for instance, is constituted by some kind of time. We see here Heidegger's implicit humanism in being in time with the uh, qualification we've introduced earlier, I believe, in these episodes where Dasein, yeah, sure, is the human being, but perhaps not just the human being. So there's question marks around this, but basically Heidegger's position is a classical humanist position. Animals are poor in world. Stones are without world. We have a world. That's the kind of chain of being in Heidegger's, uh, in Heidegger's uh, early work. Let's turn to 68C. I'll skip this, except for a remark on page 400. And it's quite a remark. So let's run to that, page 400. There's also a discussion in the pages I'm skipping over of curiosity, which is well worth looking at. Curiosity, concupiscence, um, lust of the eyes, um, which Heidegger talks about in chapter five, division one, as the um, one of the features of inauthentic life. And curiosity is defined on three nine seven as a craving for the new. Um, in German, it's Neugier. And what Heidegger means is that it's a kind of craving for the new as such. That's what uh, takes us away in curiosity. But let's look at this remark on page 400. Four lines in. Proximally, the throw of Dasein's being thrown into the world is one that does not authentically get caught. The movement which such a throw implies does not come to a stop because Dasein now is there. Dasein gets dragged along in thrownness. That is to say, as something which has been thrown into the world, it loses itself in the world in its factical submission to that which it is to concern itself. What's interesting about that remark is that Dasein's being in the world, the throw of Dasein's being in the world does not get Caught, it does not come to a stop. Rather, Dasein, us, gets dragged along in thrownness. We get dragged along in our thrownness. It's a fascinating image, like someone being dragged behind a runaway car or uh, dragged along in a balloon or on a horse that has lost control or something like that. The point is that for as long as Dasein is, it is in the throw, right? We are always in the throw of our throneness, and that throneness is always dragging us along, pulling us, um, pulling us from a past which we can never fully uh, grasp towards a future. 68D. 
Heidegger makes a wonderful summarizing remark about the structure of temporality, which brings together the analyses of authentic and inauthentic temporality. It's a long quote, but I think it's um, a useful one, an illuminating one. This is on page 401. So let's, uh, let's read it and then we can say a couple of words about it. 401. Understanding is grounded primarily in the future, whether in anticipating or in awaiting. States of mind temporalize themselves primarily in having been, whether in repetition or in having forgotten. Falling has its temporal roots primarily in the present, whether in making present or in the moment of vision. Right? So you see there, just in that, that uh, little description, we get the analyses of temporality authentically and inauthentically combined. Uh, ecstatic temporality, anticipation, having been, moment of vision, inauthentic temporality, awaiting, forgetting, making present. Continuing the quote, all the same, understanding is in every case a present which is in the process of having been. All the same, one state of mind temporalizes itself as a future which is making present. And all the same, note the repetition, the present leaps away from a future that is in the process of having been, or else it is held on to by such a future. Thus we can see that in every ecstasis, temporality temporalizes itself as a whole. And this means that in the ecstatical unity with which temporality has fully temporalized itself currently, is grounded the totality of the structural whole of existence, facticity and falling. That is the unity of the care structure. And note these next words. Temporalizing does not signify that ecstasies come in a succession. The future is not later than having been, and having been is not earlier than the present. Temporality temporalizes itself as a future which makes present in the process of having been. So, just as understanding, state of mind, and falling, right, these three key concepts uh, are not, uh, are the structural moments of care. These three concepts are experientially indistinguishable, right? It's not that there is understanding and there is state of mind and there is falling, but those three things come together in the unity of care. So too with the ecstasies of temporality, whether authentic or inauthentic. In every ecstasis, in every dimension of time, temporality temporalizes itself as a whole. The ecstasies do not come in succession, but the future is not later than having been, but rather temporalizes itself as the having been making present future. The having been making present future. Right? 
temporality temporalizes itself as a future which may present in the process of having been. That time past, time present, and time future are all contained together, a structural moments which are indistinguishable and do not come in succession, but which come of a piece. And they come of a piece in two modes, authentically and inauthentically. The idea of succession in relationship to time is something which is going to become clearer when we get to the last chapter of Being in Time, where Heidegger uh, focuses on the the idea of time reckoning and the vulgar experience of time, which is time as succession. Uh, Not yet, now, future, now, present, and no longer, now, past. Okay, let's move on to paragraph 69. Now, paragraph 69 is an interesting ragbag of a paragraph, and it's rather long-winded. And Heidegger's trying to deal with a question that we thought we'd already dealt with and, you know, was dull and dusted. And the question is, in what way is anything like a world possible at all? In what way is anything like a world possible at all? And more particularly, in what sense can we speak of the transcendence of the world with respect to Dasein? Um, Now, I'm going to be a little brutal with this paragraph, otherwise we'll never, we'll never get done. So I'm going to skip part A, because it's fairly straightforward. That's called the temporality of uh, circumspective concern. Catchy title, no? And uh, it's fairly straightforward, and the themes it raises, I think, get focused more clearly in... 69b, which picks up on page 408. 69b is very interesting because the question that Heidegger is dealing with here is a question which has been suggested throughout Being in Time, but not really directly discussed enough, which concerns the the genesis of the theoretical attitude So Heidegger is critical of the ontology of the present at hand when we view things theoretically as objects which are present to a subject. Heidegger is concerned with the genesis of that theoretical attitude, which is the attitude that's consummated in in philosophy as epistemology for Heidegger. That is generated out of the world of circumspective concern. Right, the inauthentic, average, everyday world. Um, but the way I want to do this, uh, look at these pages, in, is in a more kind of um, wide-sweeping set of issues. Because there's a, there's a phrase here on page 408 that's always interested me. And the phrase is, an existential conception of science. An existential conception of science. What does that mean and what is Heidegger really up to with regard to science and the scientific view of the world? Now, 
in order to get a sense of what Heidegger is um, about in these pages, and again, I'm looking at things in a wider, broader focus here, I think we have to get clear on the issue of scientism and look at the, um, the way phenomenology criticizes scientism. What is scientism? Because it's really what Heidegger is criticizing throughout being in time. Scientism um, rests on the fallacious claim that the theoretical or natural scientific way of viewing things, what Heidegger calls the present at hand, provides them the primary and most significant access to ourselves and to our world. Scientism is the claim that the methodology of the natural sciences is not just true for the natural sciences, but provides the best form of explanation for all phenomena in general. Heidegger, um, in these pages and elsewhere, tries to show how the scientific conception of the world is not that it's wrong, he never says that. The scientific conception of the world is derivative or parasitic upon a prior, in quotation marks, practical view of the world as ready to hand. And that practical view of the world as ready to hand is the environing world, the world of the environment that is closest, most familiar, and most meaningful to us. The world that is, to speak in a more traditional way, a world that is already colored by our values, our cognitive aesthetic and ethical values. Heidegger won't speak in those terms, but let's just do that in order to be a bit easier and more accessible. Now, what Heidegger is up to in these pages and throughout being in time is adapting uh, and extending a claim that was being made by his teacher, Edmund Husserl. It's implied in Husserl's early work and developed in Husserl's later work, the work that is later than being in time, the crisis of the European sciences. Now, the issue for Husserl is the issue of um, what he calls objectivism. Scientism is objectivism. The idea that we can treat everything that is as an object which can be treated uh, in scientific terms. Husserl's critique of scientism or objectivism is that it overlooks the, the life world, what he calls the life world, which is for him the enabling condition for scientific practice. And Husserl in The Crisis of the European Sciences um, describes the life world as the condition of possibility out of which the scientific conception of the world arises. This leads to the following point, which is really what Heidegger's up to in these pages. The critique of scientism, at least within phenomenology, does not seek to refute or negate 
the results of scientific research in the name of some um, kind of mystical unity of man and nature, which is a risk in some areas of phenomenology, perhaps some of the slightly ecstatical pronouncements of the later Merleau-Ponty. Rather, Heidegger's view, Husserl's view, is that science does not provide the primary or most significant access to a sense of ourselves and the world. Anti-scientism, being opposed to scientism, does not at all entail an anti-scientific attitude. Anti-scientism doesn't mean that we're anti-science. It rather means that we have to um, link the scientific conception of the world to the conditions of possibility which make that conception possible, which are found in the life world, or which are found in Heidegger's terms, in our being in the world. So what's required? I think this is what returns us to the text on page 408, is an existential conception of science. An existential conception of science would show how the practices of the natural sciences arise out of life world practices, and that the practices of the natural sciences are not simply reducible to to the natural sciences, but which they precede it. Another way of putting this, this point, an existential conception of science would be to refer it to a concept that Heidegger introduces in his 1924 lecture, The Concept of Time, which um, is the lecture that um, Hans-Georg Gadamer famously described as the, the primal form of being in time. And he describes what he's up to, Heidegger, in this lecture, three years prior to being in time, as a, as a pre-science, a pre-science, what comes before scientific research, the genesis of science in life world practices. And that's really what um, Heidegger's um, up to here. So this has a, an important consequence. The consequence is that for someone like Heidegger or indeed uh, Husserl, philosophy is not the underlabor to science. This is the famous description that Locke uses, right? Philosophy is an underlabor to science. Philosophy is something which, as Heidegger says, leaps ahead of the sciences by showing their basis in a fundamental ontology of persons, things, and world, what we might call the pre-theoretical layer of experience. So the task is not seeing uh, philosophy as a kind of... um, underlayer of science that tidies up, you know, the great mansion of science and kind of, you know, cleans the floors and makes sure everything is in its right place. Rather, what philosophy does is that it um, provides a uh, phenomenology of persons, things, and world, which shows how the theoretical attitude of the sciences finds its condition of possibility in our life world practices. And those life world practices 
have their own form of validity, but it is not the validity of um, the uh, the causal remarks that we attribute to natural science. It's rather something something else, what we might call kind of redescription, elucidation, uh, hermeneutical clarification, what Heidegger calls repeatedly in being in time, formal indication. Right? These are the concepts whereby we can think about forms of uh, validity, forms of, um, if you like, truth claim, which are not reducible to the empirical truth claims of um, natural science. Again, they're not anti-scientific. They are what precedes science. They are pre-science. So that is, uh, I think, what's going on in 408, 409, and these pages, or at least it's uh, how I want to um, uh, elaborate them at this moment. The existential conception of science is suggestive, I think. It's something which Heidegger doesn't really develop in his work. And it remains uh, unclear in being in time where this is going. But I think it's a possible avenue for saving Heidegger from the claim that he is um, an anti-scientific thinker or saving Heidegger for himself when Heidegger says things like science does not think, die Wissenschaft denkt nicht, which is not a particularly helpful remark. I think what Heidegger is suggesting is the possibility of an alternative praxis of science that would also have to acknowledge that science itself is a praxis. Science is an activity. Science is not just um, a theoretical attitude towards the world, but science is um, something which emerges out of a world and which is highly context-dependent and uh, history and time-dependent. Also, in these uh, pages, there are other things going on. There's a little discussion of deliberation on page 410. Uh, another line of critique of Heidegger, um, a critique that you can find in thinkers, um, thinkers like Ernst Tugendhat, who wrote a, a very important book on the concept of truth in Husserl and Heidegger, and then more famously on the, in the work of uh, someone like Habermas. And Habermasians, what they'll often claim about Heidegger is there's no... Uh, space for deliberation in Heidegger. Deliberation is absent from Heidegger's work. Well, if you look at page 410, 411, and thereabouts, you see that Heidegger indeed has a discussion of deliberation. Deliberation is not absent in Heidegger. It's an essential part of inauthentic life. It is, it is subordinate to the decision to be resolute, but it is not absent. Okay, that's a kind of excursus on the existential conception of science. Let's um, return more closely to the text on page 4, 412. And we will see on 412 that once again Heidegger is philosophizing with a hammer. And he's philosophizing about a hammer, the hammer that we saw in Division 1, Chapter 3. The very same hammer. So Heidegger is philosophizing with a hammer. And 
the issue he's dealing with on 412 is the, the sentence, the words, the hammer is heavy. The hammer is heavy. He says the hammer is heavy. These words can be understood in two ways. We can understand the words, the hammer is heavy, as a ready-to-hand remark about the fact that the hammer is hard to handle, too heavy, it's hard to manipulate. Or I can understand the remark, the hammer is heavy, as a remark about the physical property of heaviness, which the hammer has as something I regard as present at hand, right? So this distinction that we're familiar with between the hammer as it is used, ready to hand in banging nails into something, and the hammer as something which is viewed uh, objectively as having um, properties. Now, what changes in this move from the ready to hand to the present to hand is explained. This distinction which we've been familiar with for um, many hundreds of pages in being in time now is given an interesting elucidation on page 412. He says, he's explaining the shift, the change from the register hand to the presenter hand. The last paragraph on page 412. Why is it? Why is it that what we're talking about the heavy hammer shows itself differently when our way of talking is thus modified. Not because we're keeping our distance from manipulation, nor because we're just looking away from the equipmental character of this entity, but rather because we're looking at the register hands thing which we encounter and looking at it in a new way as something present at hand. The understanding of being by which our concernful dealings with entities within the world have been guided has changed over, changed over. So what happens in the shift from the register hand to the presenter hand is a change over in our understanding of being. Right? So if we relate that back to the existential conception of science, we can see that an existential conception of science would look at uh, things in their ready-to-handness uh, as that which makes possible their present-at-handness, uh, the way in which they're consummated as theoretical objects of, of science. We need both. We need both. Uh, the present-at-hand needs to be... Um, needs to be not just supplemented, it needs to be undergirded by the phenomenology of the register hand. If we lose sight of the register hand, what we lose sight of, Heidegger says here on page 413, is the place of the thing. The place of the things. Bang in the middle of page um, 413. Science is not, you know, done by Martians. It's not, you know done by people who don't live in a context, in a life world. Rather, science is a radically context-dependent praxis, a life world practice with an origin that can be uh, reactivated, as Husserl would have said. Uh, we need to reactivate what is sedimented in science and see it in a different way. 
So the point that Heidegger's making here is a very simple point, is that the, the theoretical view of the world, which is consummated in scientism, loses the experience of place, the experience of space, the existential context for things. And we have to go back to that. On 4.13, he makes that point. Middle of the page on page 4.13, in the physical assertion that the hammer is heavy, we overlook not only the tool character of the entity we encounter, but also something that belongs to any ready-to-hand equipment. It's place. Its place becomes a matter of indifference. This does not mean that what is present at hand loses its location altogether, but its place becomes a spatio-temporal position, a world point. That's the point. Heidegger then talks very suggestively about the way in which nature is viewed in modern science. And what he's saying here anticipates his later analyses of uh, modern science uh, that are known, I think probably most famously in his essay on technology, the question concerning technology. And what he's talking about here is the way in which um, nature is um, understood in mathematical physics. He mentions mathematical physics at the bottom of page 413. And uh, mathematical physics is related to what he calls on these pages the mathematical projection of nature. Those words, mathematical projection, are on the top of page 414. The mathematical projection of nature. And he's thinking of that in relationship to... Um, you know, thinkers like Galileo, Bacon, Francis Bacon, and uh, Descartes. And this idea of nature in modern science as something mathematically projected can be linked to the idea of a crisis in the sciences in a thinker like Husserl. And I think this is implicit throughout Heidegger's work. What is crucial and decisive in the rise of the mathematical view of nature is the fact that this view of nature derives from an a priori understanding of being. That's the way Heidegger will put it. So on page 414, he says, and, you know, just to say that we're, um, we are fully in the grips of a mathematical projection of nature right now with the obsession with data, with statistics, with, uh, with modeling and the rest. Heidegger's saying not saying this is wrong, but this is not all that there is. Page 414, about eight lines in. In the mathematical projection of nature, moreover, what is decisive is not primarily the mathematical as such. What is decisive is that this projection discloses something that is, that is a priori. Thus, the paradigmatic character of the mathematical natural science does not lie in its exactitude or in the fact that it is binding for every man. It consists rather in the fact that the entities which it takes as its theme are discovered in it in the only way in which entities can be discovered, by a prior projection of their state of being. 
what Heidegger is saying here is that the mathematical projection of nature, just characteristic of modern science, is a matter of the ontological framework by which we grasp things. It's not simply an, um, an ontic or an empirical matter. Another way of putting this is that modern science is the deployment of a distinct ontological framework, a distinct understanding of being. The way Heidegger will understand that understanding of nature in modern science in his later work, he'll call that the enframing, das Gestell, which reduces everything to uh, a standing reserve or a resource like human resources, which can be enframed, modelled, projected. There's a lot more to say about this paragraph, but we'll have to make do with a, a final remark, which is on page 415, about seven lines in. We shall not trace further how science has its source in authentic existence. Look at that, how science has its source in authentic existence. It's enough now if we, we understand that the thematizing of entities within the world presupposes being in the world as the basic state of Dasein, and we understand how it does so. If the thematizing of the presence at hand, the scientific projection of nature, is to become possible, Dasein must transcend the entities thematized. Transcendence does not consist in objectifying, but is presupposed by it. Again, the question of an existential conception of science, and more particularly of a science that flows from uh, authentic existence and uh, what Heidegger would call, what he calls here and there in this period, a science of being. This question is fascinating in this period of Heidegger's work, but it's left undeveloped. The point is that science has to offer an account of and take into account our lived being in the world. And this is the point of the point, is that the objectification of science, the way in which science operates through uh, projecting everything as an object, which can be viewed theoretically, this presupposes Dasein's transcendence towards the world, right? So Dasein's transcendence towards the world is the condition of possibility for the scientific explanation of nature, the scientific projection of nature. And with that mention of transcendence, we move towards um, 69C, the temporal problem of the transcendence of the world. Let me summarize here. How is there a world for Dasein. In what way must the world be if Dasein is being in the world? And these are questions which um, we've come back to in this book, which we've asked before. How is there a world for Dasein? The answer is that Dasein is its world existingly. I think that's a very nice way, very crisp way of putting what Heidegger's up to in this book. Dasein is its world existingly. That's on 4.16, end of the first paragraph. Dasein is the worldhood of the world. Dasein is the existential condition of possibility for there being a world. 
there never was a world for her except the one she sang and singing made. She was the single artificer of the world in which she stood. I think of those lines from Wallace Stevens we heard uh, before, way, way back. If we go back to the discussions of idealism and realism in paragraph 43, discussion of, you know, reality, Heidegger says on page 417, if no Dasein exists, no world is there either. If no Dasein exists, then no world is there either. So the world is Dasein dependent. We know that, right? We know that. Um, what's new is that Dasein is now conceived in terms of ecstatic temporality. The temporality analysis is new. So is the world distinct from Dasein's activity of temporalizing? Well, no. If Dasein is being in the world, then the world is the temporalizing of temporality as well. Look at what he says on 4.17. This is one, two, three, four, five lines in on 4.17. Insofar as Dasein temporalizes itself, a world is too. In temporalizing itself with regard to its being as temporality, Dasein is essentially in a world. By reason of the ecstatico-horizonal constitution of that temporality, the world is neither present to hand nor ready to hand, but temporalizes itself in temporality. It is with the outside of itself of the ecstasies there. If no Dasein exists, no world is there either. So we cannot make a distinction between Dasein and its world. And Dasein is temporal, therefore the world is temporal. Does this mean that the world is subjective? I think you're going to know the answer to this one. No, it's not subjective. 417, carrying on, he says... This is the um, beginning of the first paragraph on 417. Thus, the significance relationships which determine the structure of the world are not a network of forms which a worldless subject has laid over some kind of material. What is rather the case is that factical Dasein, understanding itself and its world ecstatically in the unity of the there, comes back from these horizons to the entities encountered within them. You could link this to another quotation, the bottom of page 417, top of page uh, 418. And it's a rhetorical move that uh, we've seen elsewhere in, in Being in Time. The quotation I'm looking at now is the um, top of page 418. And we'll come back to the thought in a second. This is 418. If the subject gets conceived ontologically as an existing Dasein whose being is grounded in temporality, then one must say that the world is subjective. But in that case, this subjective world as one that is temporarily transcendent is more objective than any possible object, right? So if we concede that it's subjective, it's also more objective than any object. It's the condition of possibility for subject-object dualism, right? I remember the... Um, discussion of idealism and realism that Heidegger will concede, well, you know, Dasein's being the world, it's idealist, but it's also realist. And it's more realistic than any realism and more 
uh, more effective than any idealism. He tends to spin these uh, terms around rhetorically. The point, the point, the point, the point is that the problem of transcendence is not the question of how a subject comes out of itself to an object or an objective world. The question is rather, how does it happen that the essential transcendence of Dasein, its essence as temporalized being in the world, gets translated into a subject-object dualism? The world is neither subjective nor objective, but prior to both concepts. Subject-object dualism and the entire epistemological control of the world presuppose the transcendence of being in the world. That's Heidegger's point. Is the standard problem of philosophy conceived as epistemology is how can we know an objective world? How can we come out from ourselves in our subjective cabinet of consciousness and no objects. Everything, get everything gets conceived as a relationship of subjects to objects. This is the epistemological control of the world. Heidegger's point is that that subject-object dualism presupposes Dasein as being in the world, and that Dasein is transcendent, right? It is the transcendence of being in the world. That's what has to be presupposed. One thing I passed over, and let me look at it, because it's a little bit of um, terminology that I, I just quoted it without explaining it, so forgive me, is the idea of horizontal schemas, which uh, pop up in these paragraphs, and um, we've not really discussed much. You know, we know that um, in the first uh, first page of Being in Time, the untitled preface to the book, he talks about time as the horizon for any understanding of being. So there's, there always, there's this constant reference to horizon. But look at what he says here on page 416. It's um, interesting, I think. So 416... Halfway down the page, he says, he's explaining ecstasies. What are the ecstasies of time? Ecstasies are not simply raptures in which one gets carried away. Rather, there belongs to each ecstasis a wither to which one is carried away. This wither of the ecstasis we call the horizontal schema. The horizontal schema. In each of the three ecstasies, the ecstatical horizon is different. The schema in which Dasein comes towards itself futurally, whether authentically or inauthentically, is the for the sake of itself. The schema in which Dasein is disclosed to itself in a state of mind as thrown is to be taken as that in the face of which it has been thrown and that to which it has been abandoned. This characterizes the horizontal schema of what has been. In existing for the sake of itself, in abandonment to itself, as something that has been thrown, Dasein as being alongside is at the same time making present. The horizontal schema for the present is defined by the in order to. Okay, deep breath. T 
time is understood in terms of temporality. Temporality is the horizon for any understanding of being. A schema, and the word is borrowed from Kant, right? a schema, and where Kant uses it, he's discussing the schematism in the foreword to the analytic of principles in the transcendental analytic in the critique of pure reason. If you want to go there, it's fascinating stuff. The schematism, and Heidegger's got a lot to say about the schematism in Kant and the problem of metaphysics a couple of years after being in time. But a schema, a schema, a schema. A schema is a form. A schema is a form. A schema is a rule of the productive imagination through which the understanding is able to apply its categories to the manifold of intuition as a way of explaining how we know the world. So for Kant, the schema, the schematism, is the way in which the imagination, the under, behind the understanding is the productive imagination and that productive imagination for Kant, this is where Romanticism found its uh, basis, that productive imagination is what's generating the framework, the categories by which we're able to make sense of the perceptual field that is the world, the manifold of intuition, as Kant calls it. Um, so the schema is, the schematism is a key concept. If we replace the language of categories with that of the existentials, and if we replace the subjectivist language of the transcendental imagination with Dasein as being in the world, then the ecstasies of temporality are that by which we can understand Dasein as being in the world in an existential and temporal manner. Once again, Kant comes close to an insight into the ontological problematic, but, according for Heidegger, always shrinks back. Right? So, um, uh, Kant had the right intuitions, but the wrong ontology. And because of that, he fell back into the tradition. Um, now, we're, we're closing, moving towards the end of the chapter. Now, paragraph 17, which is on time. It's always on space. <laughs> the whole book is on time. This is on space. We saw in, this is also a very good recap of the arguments about space and spatiality that we saw in Division 1. So it's a good uh, space for a recap. As we saw in Division 1, Dasein's being in the world has a distinctive spatiality. This spatiality is not the placelessness of world space, but it's a lived place, a lived place which is constituted, Heidegger says, by directionality and deseverance, right? So the way space occurs is by being directed towards things in the manner of bringing them close, you know, the way uh, Heidegger puts that is that Dasein has a tendency for the near, right? tendency for the near, 
that we bring things close. That's our fundamental operation with regard to space. And this existential spatiality, which is prior to objective space, is defined in terms of region or neighborhood. Right? This idea of region, neighborhood, what uh, he calls in German, Gegend. So that's a, that's a recap. What is the time of this space? What is the temporality of this space? Well, Heidegger begins by claiming that Dasein's spatiality is rooted in temporality. Space is subordinate to time. Now, this will get more complicated in the later Heidegger, but let's leave it at that for the moment. Heidegger, in the later work, will talk about an idea of time-space, Zeitraum, in um, the lecture Time and Being from 1962, which is the kind of uh, mirror text from the end of Heidegger's career, the mirror to being in time, time and being. But that's a separate question. So the first claim is that spatiality is rooted in temporality. Space is subordinate to time. And then he makes a very suggestive remark. This is on page 419. In fact, he makes a couple of very suggestive remarks. On 419, he says, this is in the first full paragraph, about eight lines in. We must first remember in what way Dasein is spatial. Dasein can be spatial only as care, in the sense of existing as factically falling. Negatively, this means that Dasein is never present at hand in space, not even proximally. Dasein does not fill up a bit of space as a real thing or an item of equipment would, so that the boundaries dividing it from the surrounding space would themselves just define that, sort, that space spatially. Dasein takes space in. This is to be understood literally. Right? And look at the, um, the footnote reference there on 419. Das Dasein nimmt Raum ein. Takes space in. It's by no means just present at hand in a bit of space which its body fills up in existing it has already made room for its own leeway. Leeway. It determines its own location in such a manner that it comes back from the space it has made room for to the place which it has reserved. What's interesting here is the idea that Dasein takes space in, which should be understood literally, Heidegger says. Dasein is not a thing occupying space with its body, but as existing Dasein, it has already made room for its leeway. Right? Again, look at the uh, look at the the footnote there. Again, it's a lovely translation, Macquarie Robinson, because even if it makes questionable decisions, they're all explained. Footnote two on page four nineteen. Existieren hatte sich je schon einem Spielraum eingeräumt. Spielraum, leeway, but literally in German, play space. 
existing Dasein has made room for its play space. That word uh, Spielraum has different connotations, different meanings in German. We could call it scope or elbow room or clearance or something like that. Also, suggestively, uh, Heidegger doesn't say this, but we could we could say it. There is a suggested link to an idea in Schiller, in Friedrich Schiller of the the Spieltrieb, the um, the the play drive in um, in Schiller. The point being that Dasein takes space in, and it takes space in as play space, as a kind of existential playing with spatiality, as an opening up of leeway, an opening up of space. And uh, I find that really rather interesting. But spatiality is rooted in temporality on the basis of this idea of temporality, which has been described now as ecstatico-horizonal, without wanting to make things too complicated, ecstatico-horizonal temporality. This is on 4-2-1. Only on that basis is it possible to break into space. Okay, so once again, the... The um, the view of things that Heidegger is opposing here is the idea that space has an objectivity. You know, there's a kind of a third-person view of space, a kind of view-from-nowhere view of space, and we occupy a point in space. Rather, we we take space in. We are that, uh, that leeway of space. We are there with the things of the world, the things of our concern, our fascination. And what's been shown now is how what undergirds that whole structure of the spatiality of Dasein of being directed towards things and bringing them close is time. Temporality is the horizon for that understanding of being. Let's get to the end of this uh, long and, like I said, ragbag chapter full of fascinating stuff, but it lacks the drama of some of the previous chapters, but great nonetheless. Paragraph 71. Now, this is, this is, this is good. Um, this paragraph is on the temporal meaning of Dasein's everydayness, and this gives us a couple of real insights into what's going on in being and time. Heidegger goes back to the question of the everyday, a question which I think has been on our minds. How does the everyday look from the standpoint of authenticity? What does the everyday look like from the standpoint of authenticity? First question is, what is everydayness? Which, you know, isn't a new question. We've been kicking that around for a while, but Heidegger gives us a lovely description of it on page 422. The first full paragraph, everydayness manifestly stands for that way of existing in which Dasein maintains itself every day. And yet this everyday does not signify the sum of those days which have been allotted to Dasein in its lifetime. Though this everyday is not to be understood calendrically, and not to be understood calendrically, not a calendar, it's not January, February, 
March, April, May, there is still an overtone of some of of some such temporal character in the significant signification of the everyday. But what we have primarily in mind in the expression everydayness is a definite how of existence, a how of existence by which Dasein is dominated through and through for life. In our analyses, we have often used the expression proximally and for the most part. Proximally signifies the way in which Dasein is manifest with one another of publicness, even if at bottom, everydayness is precisely something which in an existential manner it has surmounted. For the most part, signifies the way in which Dasein shows itself for every man, not always, but as a rule. So everydayness is a how of Dasein's existing. And then we get finally, you know, on page 422, we get an elaboration of this phrase that he's used repeatedly in the book, proximally and for the most part, or the way I prefer to render that, most closely and mostly. Proximally means life with one another in the public realm. For the most part means not always, but as a rule. So there we are in everydayness, most closely and mostly. Now the next two quotations I'm going to give, I think are fascinating. A little bit further on, on 422, he says, this is the end of the penultimate paragraph on 422. In everydayness, everything is all one and the same. But whatever the day may bring is taken as diversification. Everydayness is determinative for Dasein, even when it has not chosen the they for its hero. Even when it has not chosen the they for its hero. So even when Dasein lives with the they, lives with Dasman, lives with what they say, even when Dasein has chosen not to live with the they, even when Dasein has chosen to be authentic, it is still determined by the everyday. Okay, that's the thought. Even when Dasein chooses itself, chooses to be authentic, it is still shot through with everydayness. Even when it's not chosen the they for its hero. That expression for its hero is going to be repeated in the next chapter on, on historicity. That will come back um, in the next episode, the next lecture. So what is the relation between the everyday and the authentic? What's the relation between the everyday and the authentic? The bottom of page 422, Heidegger writes, this is one, two, three, four, five lines up from the bottom. In everydayness, Dasein can undergo dull suffering, sink away in the dullness of it, and evade it by seeking new ways in which its dispersion in its affairs may be further dispersed. In the moment of vision, indeed, and often just for that moment, existence can even gain the mastery over the everyday, but it can never extinguish it. I'm going to continue that quote in a second, but 
Let's just listen to that. We can sink into the dull suffering of the everyday and the dispersions of the everyday. Or, that's inauthentic life, or if we choose to be authentic, we can master the everyday in the moments of vision. But even in that mastery of the everyday, we can never extinguish the everyday. Everydayness remains determinative for Dasein, even when it has not chosen the they as its hero. Now, continuing the quote, 423, this is the last quotation I want to look at. And here we confront, I think, the, once again, something I've pointed out before, the enigma, the enigma at the heart of the existential analytic. Top of page 423, that which is ontically so familiar in the way Dasein has been factically interpreted that we never pay any heed to it, hides enigma after enigma existential ontologically. The natural horizon for starting the existential analytic of Dasein is only seemingly self-evident. What does this mean? The existential analytic renders enigmatic the everyday ontic fundament of life. What Husserl calls the natural attitude, what Plato calls the realm of opinion, of doxa, the cave. But, and this is crucial, Heidegger does not say that the existential analytic overcomes or permanently brackets out the natural attitude of ontic life. We do not achieve some permanent breakout from the Platonic cave. Rather, as Heidegger says, everydayness is determinative for Dasein even when it has not chosen the they for its hero. Even when I choose to become authentically who I am, resolute, self-certain, constant, even when I choose to become authentically who I am, the everyday is not extinguished it is rather rendered enigmatic or uncanny, to use another word that Heidegger's deployed in this book. So that which is ontically so familiar hides enigma after enigma ontologically, or in the words of the opening paragraph of the existential analytic, first paragraph of the book, the ontically nearest and familiar is the ontologically furthest. That which is ontically nearest is ontologically furthest. That which is close to us, so close that it's under our noses, is furthest from us and most enigmatic, the everyday. The existential analytic of Dasein seems to return ceaselessly to the enigma from which it begins, an enigma which in Heidegger's words, shatters the seeming self-evidence of any natural attitude from which phenomenology might begin in order to force the philosopher to formulate anew the question of being in the world. That is, Heidegger transforms the beginning point of phenomenology. We move from what in, in Husserl's work is the self-evidence of the natural attitude to the enigma of a fact the fact that one is. 
the enigma of uh, everyday life. That's what we leave. That's what we return to. That's what we can achieve momentary mastery over, but that's what we fall back into. Authenticity is not a once and for all permanent condition. It's, um, it's transitory. And it overlays a fundamental opacity, what I've called in something I wrote a long time ago, I think this is in the text, originary inauthenticity, an enigmatic a priori. An enigmatic a priori that both seems to resist phenomenological description and is that in relationship to which the phenomenologist describes. So philosophy is an activity which attempts to be equal to the enigma of our being in the world whilst knowing all the time that it cannot. So philosophy is this, um, um, this complex back and forth with everydayness and our determination with determination by everydayness. We leave the cave, we return to it. That's it. That's the end of that chapter. Now, like I say, it's a long chapter. There's lots of things going on. And I think it, it, it completes and tidies up a whole number of elements of the analysis that we've, uh, we've seen in Being in Time. And you might think, well, how many more surprises can there be in this wonderful book? Well, Simon, there's one or two more. And I think a big one is in the next chapter. The next chapter is on historicity. And it's a really compelling theme. It's the theme where the issue of politics is going to come to the surface. And also it's a, it's a question of, you know, very simply of, of the following thought is that Heidegger seems to be, you know, obsessed with death, right? Being towards death, mortality, finitude, the end, the end, the end, the end. What about the beginning? What about the beginning, Martin? What about the, what about birth? Well, Heidegger's going to deal with that. We don't need to wait for Hannah Arendt and Hannah Arendt's natality to approach that theme. It's already announced in the next chapter of Being in Time. And that's what we're going to deal with next time. And remember, this can be a little kind of tantalizing, saucy clue. Uh, remember when in 1936, when Heidegger went to Rome, he met a former student of his, Karl Lovett. L-O-W-I-T-H, very important philosopher in his own right. Lovitz, who had been forced out of Germany because of who he was, meets his former teacher in Rome and says, and Heidegger went to Rome wearing the, uh, apparently wearing the National Socialist badge on his lapel, a little like American politicians with their stars and stripes. And uh, Lovett asked Heidegger, well, you know, what's the relationship between what you said in being in time and all that cool stuff in being in time and your um, attitude towards politics? And his one word answer was historicity. Historicity. The next time, maybe we'll figure out what that means. Okay, thank you for listening. See you next time. <laughs>